399, chapters 45 and 46 of Sense and Sensibility. Book talk begins at 17 minutes. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road. New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 399. Almost. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and Marchair Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy and our patrons at patreon.com slash craftlet. Visit the site and find out what kinds of rewards await you for supporting Craftlet. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I am well. But my computer isn't. Guess what's back in the shop? I swear to you, if they don't do anything to it this time, they will have to give me another computer because this has now acquired the tint of the ridiculous. I feel like I am in a Lewis Carroll book. Ah, Everything is absurd, except you. You are not so much on the absurd side. You are safe and sane and lovely. And I have some knitting news. I actually went to my local yarn store last night. I had to pick up some stuff to spin for the dog hair spinning that I'm working on. And, you know, it's tempting when you're in a yarn store. But I saw something that I had not seen before. I don't know if you're aware of this. I understand that not all the yarn shops have gotten it. It's fairly recent. But you know all that self-striping sock yarn? There's a new invention out there, which I know feels something like, hey, There's a new invention in the wheel. Look at that. But really, it is kind of clever. The Schockenmeyer Company, which makes Regia self-striping sock yarn, has a new limited edition ball of yarn called Perfect, P-A-I-R-F-E-C-T. And I I will link to both the Schockenmeyer website and also uh, some other sites in the U.S. where you can buy this. What they've done is they've added a bright yellow starter thread to the ball. And there is another bright yellow starter thread in the ball. That tells you where to begin knitting to get perfect socks. For those of us who would prefer to do two at a time, One starter yarn is on the outside, and the other starter yarn is on the inside, the the clean pull from the middle part. And you just clip off the yellow and start knitting, and you have socks with perfectly matched stripes. I know, now that you've heard it, it sounds like a no-brainer, and why didn't they do it a long time ago? I don't know. Innovations, man. So cool. So, who'd have thunk? And from forever ago, one of the emails that got lost in the maelstrom of my computer life 
was one from Martha, who said she uses Ohio Valley Natural Fibers, which is ovnf.com, and it's a small local mill in Ohio, and a rather unique one, as all the equipment is recycled from old mills, so everything is antique. They employ local women, which is also pretty neat, and they do small batches, and she has had them blend dog hair and wool before, and if everything is washed, the cost would be eight ninety-five a pound which sounds pretty awesome to moi. And on the dog hair front, have any of you had trouble washing the smell out of dog hair? I'm getting a smell that is not wet dog. I think it's wet dog was kept in a garbage bag for a really long time. I, I finally had to add pine salt to the water just to cut the smell. This was after, I don't know, nine Nine batches of washing in Dawn. It's it's pretty bad. So I can't ship it off to a mill yet. I have tried carting a small amount and we'll see. Also wondering if you have spun dog hair before, did you oil the fiber? Because otherwise, you know, it goes poofy all over the place. And I'm I'm curious to see how you keep the fiber out of your eyes. <laughs> Just, just one of those safety precautions I like to know about. And then over in the Facebook group, and I'm going to actually link out to the Facebook groups. There's a Facebook page where you can listen to episodes. It's kind of the official Craftlet page and things upload there automatically. And that's pretty much what that's for. You can comment there on a post that I've put up, but you can't post there, which bugs me, but there it is. However, there's also a Craftlet group. And that is where you can post your own stuff to share with everybody. Some marvelous things have been getting posted, including this. Just a few days ago, Caroline posted this notice. Try googling Knight's Hayes Court near Tiverton in Devon. You are talking about orchard walls. The walls, the orchards of a large house, were often referred to as kitchen gardens the productive sections of the garden to a big house where fruits and vegetables were grown. At Nightsays, the walls were built around fires, so chimneys can be seen in the walls to create even more heat for crops. They could even grow pineapples in special cold frames, which were really just the opposite. Cow dung and straw would be placed in the base, and the soil would heat wonderfully and needed to be turned regularly to prevent it from catching fire because dung (laughs) and methane. Once the soil was well rotted, pineapples could be planted into it, and the warmth would mean that a wealthy landowner could show off the exotic fruit to his friends. One such pineapple did the rounds of several such establishments because that was the demand to show it off. This explains so much, right? How they were able to get such amazing fruit in England back because you see banquet halls and, t- and tables and paintings every once in a while, and there's some really good fruit there. And I kept thinking, I don't think the climate in England could have produced that. And shipping takes a while back then. So mm-hmm, here's how. And as if that weren't cool enough, she went on and said, I have just clarified with my DH, who was a garden rounds man, but who is also, as I am about, the history of gardening at the big houses. Pineapples would be planted in fairly poor soil, That would be fresh horse dung. 
straight from the stables, and it would be placed around the sides of these cold frames. A junior garden boy, poor thing, would be employed 24 hours a day to turn the horse dung to prevent it from catching fire. What a job, huh? Nowhere to go but up, so I guess that's a positive take on it. But wow, wow. And then she also added, as far as publishing the bands, they are still read on three consecutive weeks prior to a wedding in the Church of England for a church wedding. The bands will be posted outside a registry if a civil wedding is to be performed. So in both cases, the public does have the chance to say, hey, this wedding can't take place because... And then, on another gardening note, years ago, I think in the 1980s, it may have even been before that, there was a BBC TV series called The Victorian Kitchen Garden. You may be able to find some of it on YouTube, and I found references to it, um, but I haven't found any actual episodes yet. Just kind of follow up, where are they now documentaries? But those are pretty fun, too. She said, the significance to me, as I mentioned, on there is a Mr. Rivers. That was my maiden name, and we're still looking to find a connection between our family and this gentleman. He selected the pair that eventually became, and this is in capital letters, this is a real name, the conference pair. It's very famous in the UK, and we might have it in the US. I personally have not seen it, but pairs are not something I see all the time in the stores. They kind of come and go very quickly, so I may have missed it. And this Mr. Rivers from the Victorian Kitchen Garden also selected the plants that grew early Rivers peaches. During that series, the presenter tastes one such peach, and with the juice running down his chin, exclaims, Well done, Mr. Rivers. <laughs> his voice is full of awe. You can see why I would love to find a connection with him. He even looks and stands the same way as my father. And that comment totally rocked my world because I've had a similar thing happen. My grandfather, my mom's father, he was the one who worked on cars all the time and, and did all that kind of engineering stuff and always had, you know, black grease in the creases of his, of his fingers, the cracks of his fingers. He had a very particular way of holding his hands and manipulating things. And he also had a very particular way of dealing with paper, like books, little books and things like that. In my late 20s, early 30s, when I moved to New York, I met someone with the same last name, but I'd never heard of him before. It turns out distant, I mean distant, cousin of my grandfather. But the eerie part was, before we confirmed that they were in fact actually related somewhere back in time, when he met me, he said, oh, I need to get your information. And he reached into the breast pocket of his coat and pulled out a little book wrapped with rubber bands and with a little tiny pencil sticking into it, um, or, or pen, a, the size of a golf pencil, but it was a pen. And he, he undid all the rubber bands and opened the book up to write. The rubber bands, the book, the pen, and his handwriting all entirely resembled my grandfather. Like, I would have picked it out and said, wow, you have that just like my grandfather would in California even if he wasn't named the same. It was just bizarre. And I thought, wow, genetics, man, you really can't, <laughs> you really can't fight against some of this stuff. That is amazing. And actually, on that same side of my family, we had the most amazing thing that my mom perpetrated when we went to the beach for our vacation just recently. 
on the way down, we went through a particular part of New Jersey where we knew our ancestors' home on my grandfather's side of the family had lived. We knew, we know when they came over from England. We know where they were. And then we know actually quite a bit about where they moved to and when and, you know, the family Bible birth dates and all that stuff. And my, my mom and sister have done a lot more with that than I have. But we knew that the house that had been built by the original couple, uh, I think Samuel and Sarah, they came over and they built a brick house. And the bricks are a particular kind of brick. I think, uh, I want to say Dutch, that the, the manufacturing style was different because of where they were in New Jersey. And they had two-tone bricks. So the darker red and then a lighter, kind of a light, rusty color. If any of my pictures turned out well, I will post a picture to this because up in the upper side of one of the side walls, they have their initials, they have their monogram in brick on the wall. Well, they're down this long driveway. It's a farm still, this part of New Jersey. It is the Garden State. And, you know, we're driving up someone's driveway. She comes out, meets all of us, is thrilled to meet someone from the original builders of the home. And as we're chatting about the architecture and what they've done to the house and what had been done before they moved in, she and her husband have been there for a long time. She told us that she found a bundle of documents that were from those original relatives up in the attic, in um, preserved in uh, that kind of waxed paper. You know, they used to make uh, oil skin pouches or they'd treat fabric with wax to make it watertight or waterproof. And she said it was a roll, a roll of papers and she was going to uh, un unroll them carefully because they are old and uh, photograph them. So we'll have scans of, of these documents. Uh, if, I, if I got a good picture, I will post it for you because it's really quite lovely. But she taught me something else that if you've ever visited any homes or uh, museum homes, you know, that have been set up. Now, I don't know if this is true in the UK, but I have seen this over and over again in the States. If the doorways on the buildings have been left intact, you might come across a door that is wider than the front door and a good, I don't know, three, three and a half feet off, the, well, three feet off the ground. No steps. N no steps at all. And so every time I've seen them, I've kind of looked at the foundation of the house to see, well, that's kind of odd. Were there steps there? And they just got removed because you should be able to see a change in the color of the brick. It would have weathered differently if they'd removed the brick steps at some point. It turns out that that door is called a hearse door. Think about it. Right. It was so you could back up the wagon from the undertakers and fit a coffin through the door. It also turns out to not just be the, the hearse door, but it was also the way that they would load coal. If you were getting a delivery of coal, they'd just back the coal wagon up and shovel it into your coal buckets. And because of that, that room was, it was a parlor room, which is where you would lay someone out if they had passed away. But it also had a fireplace in it, and it would be 
if you didn't have a body there, used as a, a parlor room or a sitting room. From what she said, and I don't know if this is true, it was certainly true in this home, the parlor room, which was, you know, three feet higher than the ground level, uh, that fireplace abutted the kitchen fireplace on the other side. So the kitchen fireplace and the parlor fireplace would have shared one brick wall, a thin brick wall, a non-insulated brick wall. So you'd get radiant heat from both sides. So even if you didn't have a fire in the parlor fireplace, you'd get some radiant heat from the kitchen. Very efficient. I thought that was fabulous. So now you know, if you see one of those, one of those doors in, uh, well, actually, you probably have seen them in westerns and and just didn't even notice. So <laughs> there you go. There's your little helpful, totally random, it probably won't even come up in Trivial Pursuit thing that you've learned today. You're welcome. <laughs> From Craftlit. We got a lovely voicemail this week from Lorna, and unfortunately the last bit of it got cut off, but I think I think I can see where she's going with it, and I'm going to let her voicemail lead us in to our book talk. Hi, this is Lorna from Tacoma. I'm talking to you on SpeakPipe, and I'm in a car pulled over to the side of the road, so you can see how that works for you. I've never called in before, but I just listened to 397, Sense and Sensibility, and um, I was waiting for you to say something about this, and you didn't, so you led up to it. Um, saying that you hadn't ever noticed before the sort of stiff exchange between Eleanor and, um, you know, the guy, yeah, Edward, um, tw- at the end of the chapter. And it always struck me that it was stiff and formal also, but what, what struck me was that Eleanor is saying, because she has to, because it's the only polite thing for her to say or how to speak we would we would just say i just love you even more because you're doing the right thing but of course you know that i'm miserable because i know that you're not really going to be happy cuz you love me and you couldn't say that so by giving her polite uh, congratulations she was saying in a roundabout and appropriate way that I wish you very happy, and also mentioning Colonel Brandon's um... sense and sensibility. Well, as we near the end of our book, which we are nearing very rapidly, I know, can you believe it? (laughs) But as we near the end of the book, there's less and less that is being put forward that is new or strangely archaic, or even particularly different from anything that we would expect to find in a book of similar structure and substance as we would get from an author today. The language, of course, is pure Jane Austen, which is awesome, but it means less me and more book. (laughs) So the only two things I wanted to bring up were the use of the word peculiar which in this case means kind of like a a specific or particular thing. I know in the United States, the place where we often hear the word peculiar used oddly is in discussions of history. 
the institution of slavery here in the United States was called a peculiar institution by people who practiced it. Specialized, particular to their part of the country, not something you'd find anywhere else, not really carrying with it the modern usage of the word peculiar, which colloquially means kind of odd. The other thing was I wanted to remind you that sometimes the Middleton's home, uh, Barton, is referred to just as the park. And in the same section where you hear that phrase, the park, you will hear Marianne talking about walking around. And she mentions walking to the Abbey Land. And it's exactly what you think it is, A-B-B-E-Y-L-A-N-D, where an old priory or monastery used to be as part of a larger abbey. And she talks about tracing its foundations as far as we are told they once reached. For the listeners who went on the 2010 Craftlet trip to London, Bath, and Wales, we got to see Tintern Abbey on the Wye River, and it was spectacular. Perfect morning sun breaking through the clouds like the fingers of God. It was just lovely. But we also got to see this kind of thing happen where the foundations of what was left of Tintern Abbey extended far past where the walls that had been left were standing. And it's it was very interesting to get to see the layout and where the kitchens were and where the sleeping quarters were and all of that in relation to where the abbey itself was. So that's what she's talking about. But there's something else that's really fun that's very Jane Austen. When Jane was younger, she wrote a satirical history of England. She had nothing in particular nice to say about Henry VIII, who was the king who was responsible, especially if you saw Wolf Hall recently that was done by the BBC, or if you read the Hilary Mantel books, um, you know that Henry VIII was responsible for shutting down the Catholic Church, replacing it with the Anglican Church. But part of that process was going in and taking like the, the lead from the roof of the leaded churches, the leaded roof churches, or confiscating the gold. And, and uh, th- there was a lot of corruption in the church at the time, but he just left the churches to rot, which was purposeful because he wanted that to be a symbol of, don't you go against me, lest this happen to you, which is rather effective advertising. However, Jane Austen's comment on all of this was uh, regarding Henry VIII. Nothing can be said in his vindication but that his abolishing religious houses and leaving them to the ruinous depredations of time has been of infinite use to the landscape of England in general. <laughs> because this is, this is the Arcadia thing. This is if you don't have ruins growing on your ground and you are like Marianne, then for, oh, by God, you must go build yourself some ancient ruins. <laughs> It seems like like Beverly Hills would have loved this. My memory of, of Beverly Hills was, you know, people would build Greek temples out in their backyard because, of course, Greek temples appear in Southern California. Duh. Clearly, that's authentic. <laughs> uh, oh, I can't remember. Have I told you guys about the Walden Witch House? In Beverly Hills, near where the junction of Wilshire 
and Santa Monica, where those two streets meet. If you go um, north, maybe it's north and east a little bit, it's on a funky diagonal. There's a street called Walden, like Walden Pond. And on the corner of Walden and... Uh, I can't remember. But on the corner, there is a witch house. It looks like the Hansel and Gretel house. And my memory is that this had actually been a set from one of the old silent pictures uh, versions of Hansel and Gretel. And somebody lives there now. So I think they took the facade of the witch house from the movie set. And then they built kind of a little moat around it, a little creek. And funky old leaded glass windows and a crooked peaked roof and 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 what does this have to do with sense and sensibility? Nothing. Digression. So today's chapters, 45 and 46, are part of our climax and denouement. We have two parallel tracks going in the story. We have Eleanor and we have Marianne. And that means Jane Austen had to do some fancy footwork here because they are each going to have a climax to their own own story, as well as a kind of a larger climax to the book. And in some ways today, you will get Marianne's personal climax. She had her, well, actually, no, we, we start to get her denouement, because her, her real climax to her story was her illness. She almost died. So that was, you know, the thrilling adventure hour moment for Marianne. Now we get to watch how she kind of puts everything back in place at the end of the story. That's the the untying of all of the knots that were created during the course of the story itself. And that's great, but that's kind of complicated for modern readers. We're used to having more of a a telegraphing of, hey, the climax is coming. Katniss is in this situation now, and that means the end of the book must be near. We don't really get that with Jane Austen, which is fine. But it does mean that when kids are reading it in school and they've been told that there is this structure and the structure is what books stick to, this is one of those moments where a, a student might go, oh, well, wait a minute, how, how does this work? And here's how it works. We're going to have more than one climax, and they're going to be of varying strengths. So let's give a listen to chapters 45 and 46 of Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, read for us by Maya Daguerre. Chapter 45 Eleanor, for some time after he left her, for some time even after the sound of his carriage had died away, remained too much oppressed by a crowd of ideas widely differing in themselves, but of which sadness was the general result, to think even of her sister. Willoughby, he whom only half an hour ago she had abhorred as the most worthless of men, Willoughby, in spite of all his faults, excited a degree of commiseration for the sufferings produced by them, which made her think of him as now separated for ever from her family, with a tenderness, a regret rather in proportion, as she soon acknowledged within herself, to his wishes than to his merits. She felt that his influence over her mind was heightened by circumstances which ought not in reason to have weight by that person of uncommon attraction, that open, affectionate and lively manner which it was no merit to possess, and by that still ardent love for Marianne which it was not even innocent to indulge. 
but she felt that it was so long, long before she could feel its influence less. When at last she returned to the unconscious Marianne, she found her just wakening, refreshed by so long and sweet a sleep to the extent of her hopes. Eleanor's heart was full. The past, the present, the future, Willoughby's visit, Marianne's safety, and her mother's expected arrival threw her altogether into an agitation of spirits which kept off every indication of fatigue and made her only fearful of betraying herself to her sister. Short was the time, however, in which that fear could affect her, for within half an hour after Willoughby's leaving the house, she was again called downstairs by the sound of another carriage. Eager to save her mother from every unnecessary moment's horrible suspense, she ran immediately into the hall and reached the outer door, just in time to receive and support her as she entered it. Mrs Dashwood, whose terror as they drew near the house had produced almost the conviction of Marianne's being no more, had no voice to inquire after her, no voice even for Eleanor. But she, waiting neither for salutation nor inquiry, instantly gave the joyful relief, and her mother, catching it with all her usual warmth, was in a moment as much overcome by her happiness as she had been before by her fears. She was supported into the drawing-room between her daughter and her friend, and there, shedding tears of joy, though still unable to speak, embraced Eleanor again and again, turning from her at intervals to press Colonel Brandon's hand, with a look which spoke at once her gratitude and her conviction of his sharing with herself in the bliss of the moment. He shared it, however, in a silence even greater than her own. As soon as Mrs Dashwood had recovered herself, to see Marianne was her first desire, and in two minutes she was with her beloved child, rendered dearer to her than ever by absence, unhappiness and danger. Eleanor's delight, as she saw what each felt in the meeting, was only checked by an apprehension of its robbing Marianne of father's sleep. But Mrs Dashwood could be calm, could even be prudent when the life of a child was at stake, and Marianne, satisfied in knowing her mother was near her, and conscious of being too weak for conversation, submitted readily to the silence and quiet prescribed by every nurse around her. Mrs Dashwood would sit up with her all night, and Eleanor, in compliance with her mother's entreaty, went to bed. But the rest, which one night entirely sleepless and many hours of the most wearying anxiety seemed to make requisite, was kept off by irritation of spirits. Willoughby, poor Willoughby as she now allowed herself to call him, was constantly in her thoughts. She would not but have heard his vindication for the world, and now blamed, now acquitted herself for having judged him so harshly before— but her promise of relating it to her sister was invariably painful. She dreaded the performance of it, dreaded what its effect on Marianne might be, doubted whether after such an explanation she could ever be happy with another, and for a moment wished Willoughby a widower. Then, remembering Colonel Brandon, reproved herself, felt that to his sufferings and his constancy far more than to his rivals the reward of her sister was due— and wished anything rather than Mrs Willoughby's death. The shock of Colonel Brandon's errand at Barton had been much softened to Mr Dashwood by her own previous alarm, for so great was her uneasiness about Marianne that she had already determined to set out for Cleveland on that very day, without waiting for any farther intelligence, 
and had so far settled her journey before his arrival that the Careys were then expected every moment to fetch Margaret away, as her mother was unwilling to take her where there might be infection. Marianne continued to mend every day, and the brilliant cheerfulness of Mrs Dashwood looks and spirits proved her to be, as she repeatedly declared herself, one of the happiest women in the world. Eleanor could not hear the declaration, nor witness its proofs, without sometimes wondering whether her mother ever recollected Edward. But Mrs Dashwood, trusting to the temperate account of her own disappointment which Eleanor had sent her, was led away by the exuberance of her joy to think only of what would increase it. Marianne was restored to her from a danger in which, as she now began to feel, her own mistaken judgment in encouraging the unfortunate attachment to Willoughby had contributed to place her, and in her recovery she had yet another source of joy unthought of by Eleanor. It was thus imparted to her as soon as any opportunity of private conference between them occurred. At last we are alone. My Eleanor, you do not yet know all my happiness. Colonel Brandon loves Marianne. He has told me so himself. Her daughter, feeling by turns both pleased and pained, surprised and not surprised, was all silent attention. You are never like me, dear Eleanor, or I should wonder at your composure now. Had I sat down to wish for any possible good to my family, I should have fixed on Colonel Brandon's marrying one of you as the object most desirable, and I believe Marianne will be the most happy with him of the two. Eleanor was half inclined to ask her reason for thinking so, because satisfied that none founded on such an impartial consideration of their age, characters or feelings could be given. But her mother must always be carried away by her imagination on any interesting subject, and therefore, instead of an inquiry, she passed it off with a smile. He opened his whole heart to me yesterday as we travelled. It came out quite unawares, quite undesignedly. I, you may well believe, could talk of nothing but my child. He could not conceal his distress. I saw that it equalled my own, and he, perhaps thinking that mere friendship as the world now goes, would not justify so warm a sympathy. Or rather, not thinking at all, I suppose, giving way to irresistible feelings, made me acquainted with his earnest, tender, constant affection for Marianne. He has loved her, my Eleanor, ever since the first moment of seeing her. Here, however, Eleanor perceived not the language, not the professions of Colonel Brandon, but the natural embellishments of her mother's active fancy, which fashioned everything delightful to her as it chose. His regard for her, infinitely surpassing anything that Willoughby ever felt or feigned as much, more warm, as much more sincere or constant, which ever we are to call it, has subsisted through all the knowledge of dear Marianne's unhappy prepossession of that worthless young man, and without selfishness, without encouraging a hope, could he have seen her happy with another. Such a noble mind, such openness, such sincerity. No one can be deceived in him. Colonel Brandon's character, said Eleanor, as an excellent man, is well established. "'I know it is,' replied her mother seriously. "'Or after such a warning, I should be the last to encourage his affection, "'or even to be pleased by it. "'But his coming for me as he did with such active, such ready friendship "'is enough to prove him one of the worthiest of men.' 
His character, however, answered Eleanor, does not rest on one act of kindness, to which his affection for Marianne were humanity out of the case would have prompted him. To Mrs. Jennings, to the Middletons, he has been long and intimately known. They equally love and respect him, and even my own knowledge of him, though lately acquired, is very considerable, and so highly do I value and esteem him, that if Marianne can be happy with him, I shall be as ready as yourself to think our connection the greatest blessing to us in the world. What answer did he give him? Did you allow him to hope? Oh, my love, I could not then talk of hope to him or to myself. Marianne might at that moment be dying, but he did not ask for hope or encouragement. His was an involuntary confidence, an irrepressible effusion to a soothing friend, not an application to a parent. Yet after a time I did say, for at first I was quite overcome, that if she lived, as I trusted she might, my greatest happiness would lie in promoting their marriage. And since our arrival, since our delightful security, I have repeated it to him more fully. I have given him every encouragement in my power. Time, a very little time, I tell him, will do everything. Marianne's heart is not to be wasted for ever on such a man as Willoughby. His own merits must soon secure it. To judge from the Colonel's spirits, however, you have not yet made him equally sanguine. No, he thinks Marianne's affection too deeply rooted for any change in it. Under a great length of time, and even supposing her heart again free, is too diffident of himself to believe that with such a difference of age and disposition he could ever attach her. There, however, he is quite mistaken. His age is only so much beyond hers as to be an advantage, as to make his character and principles fixed, and his disposition, I am well convinced, is exactly the very one to make your sister happy. And his person, his manners too, are all in his favour. My partiality does not blind me. He certainly is not so handsome as Willoughby, but at the same time there is something much more pleasing in his countenance. There was always a something, if you remember, in Willoughby's eyes at times, which I did not like. Eleanor could not remember it, but her mother, without waiting for her assent, continued. And his manners, the colonel's manners, are not only more pleasing to me than Willoughby's ever were, but they are of a kind I well known to be more solidly attaching to Marianne. Their gentleness, their genuine attention to other people and their manly unstudied simplicity is much more accordant with her real disposition than the liveliness, often artificial and often ill-timed, of the other. I am very sure myself that he had Willoughby turned out as really amiable, as he has proved himself the contrary, Marianne would yet never have been so happy with him as she will be with Colonel Brandon. She paused. Her daughter could not quite agree with her, but her dissent was not heard, and therefore gave no offence. At Delaford she will be within an easy distance of me, added Mrs Dashwood, even if I remain at Barton, and in all probability, for I hear it is a large village. Indeed, there certainly must be some small house or cottage close by that would suit us quite as well as our present situation. Poor Eleanor! Here was a new scheme for getting her to Delaford, but her spirit was stubborn. His fortune too, for at my time of life you know everybody cares about that, and though I neither know nor desire to know what it really is, I'm sure it must be a good one. 
Here they were interrupted by the entrance of a third person, and Eleanor withdrew to think it all over in private, to wish success to her friend, and yet in wishing it. Chapter 46 Marianne's illness, though weakening in its kind, had not been long enough to make her recovery slow, and with youth, natural strength, and her mother's presence in aid, it proceeded so smoothly as to enable her to remove within four days after the arrival of the latter into Mrs. Palmer's dressing-room. When there, at her own particular request, for she was impatient to pour forth her thanks to him for fetching her mother, Colonel Brandon was invited to visit her. His emotion in entering the room, in seeing her altered looks, and in receiving the pale hand which she immediately held out to him, was such as, in Eleanor's conjecture, must arise from something more than his affection for Marianne, or the consciousness of it being known to others, and she soon discovered, in his melancholy eye and varying complexion as he looked at her sister, the probable recurrence of many past scenes of misery to his mind, brought back by that resemblance between Marianne and Eliza, already acknowledged and now strengthened by the hollow eye, the sickly skin, the posture of reclining weakness, and the warm acknowledgement of particular obligation. Mrs. Dashwood, not less watchful of what passed than her daughter, but with a mind very differently influenced, and therefore watching to a very different effect, saw nothing in the Colonel's behaviour but what arose from the most simple and self-evident sensations, while in the actions and words of Marianne she persuaded herself to think that something more than gratitude already dawned. At the end of another day or two, Marianne, growing visibly stronger every twelve hours, Mrs. Dashwood, urged equally by her own and her daughter's wishes, began to talk of removing to Barton. On her measures depended those of her two friends. Mrs. Jennings could not quit Cleveland during the Dashwood's stay, and Colonel Brandon was soon brought by their united request to consider his own abode there as equally determinate, if not equally indispensable. At his and Mrs. Jennings' united request in return, Mrs. Dashwood was prevailed on to accept the use of his carriage on her journey back for the better accommodation of her sick child, and the Colonel, at the joint invitation of Mrs. Dashwood and Mrs. Jennings, whose active good nature made her friendly and hospitable to other people as well as herself, engaged with pleasure to redeem it by a visit at the cottage in the course of a few weeks. The day of separation and departure arrived, and Marianne, after taking so particular and lengthened a leave of Mrs. Jennings, one so earnestly grateful, so full of respect and kind wishes, had seemed due to her own heart from a secret acknowledgement of past inattention, and bidding Colonel Brandon farewell with the cordiality of a friend, was carefully assisted by him into the carriage, of which he seemed anxious that she should engross at least half. Mrs. Dashwood and Eleanor then followed, and the others were left by themselves to talk of the travellers and feel their own dullness, till Mrs. Jennings was summoned to her chaise to take comfort in the gossip of her maid for the loss of her two young companions, and Colonel Brandon immediately afterwards took his solitary way to Delaford. The Dashwoods were two days on the road, and Marianne bore her journeys on both without essential fatigue. Everything that the most zealous affection, the most solicitous care could do to render her comfortable was the office of each watchful companion, 
and each found their reward in her bodily ease and her calmness of spirits. To Eleanor, the observation of the latter was particularly grateful. She, who had seen her week after week so consistently suffering so oppressed by anguish of heart, which she had neither courage to speak of nor fortitude to conceal, now saw with joy, which no other could equally share, an apparent composure of mind, which in being the result, as she trusted, of serious reflection, must eventually lead to her contentment and cheerfulness. As they approached Barton, indeed, and entered on scenes of which every field and every tree brought some peculiar, some painful recollection, she grew silent and thoughtful, and turning away her face from their notice, sat earnestly gazing through the window. But here Eleanor could neither wonder nor blame, and when she saw, as she assisted Marianne from the carriage, that she had been crying, she saw only an emotion too natural in itself to raise anything less tender than pity, and in its unobtrusiveness entitled to praise. In the whole of her subsequent manner she traced the direction of a mind awakened to reasonable exertion, for no sooner had they entered their common sitting-room than Marianne turned her eyes around it with a look of resolute firmness, as if determined at once to accustom herself to the sight of every object with which the remembrance of Willoughby could be connected. She said little, but every sentence aimed at cheerfulness— and though a sigh sometimes escaped her, it never passed away without the atonement of a smile. After dinner, she would try her pianoforte. She went to it, but the music on which her eye first rested was an opera procured for her by Willoughby, containing some of their favourite duets, and bearing on its outward leaf her own name in his handwriting. That would not do. She shook her head and put the music aside, and after running over the keys for a minute, complained of feebleness in her fingers, and closed the instrument again, declaring, however, with a firmness as she did so, that she should in future practice much. The next morning produced no abatement in these happy symptoms. On the contrary, with a mind and body alike strengthened by rest, she looked and spoke with more genuine spirit, anticipating the pleasure of Margaret's return, and talking of the dear family party which should then be restored, of their mutual pursuits and cheerful society, as the only happiness worth a wish. "'When the weather is settled and I have recovered my strength,' said she, "'we will take long walks together every day. "'We will walk to the farm at the edge of the down "'and see how the children go on. "'We will walk to Sir John's new plantations at Barton Cross "'and the Abbey Land, "'and we will go often to the old ruins of the Priory "'and try and trace its foundations "'as far as we are told they once reached. "'I know we shall be happy. "'I know the summer will pass happily away.' I mean never to be later in rising than six, and from that time till dinner I shall divide every moment between music and reading. I have formed my plan, and am determined to enter on a course of serious study. Our own library is too well known to me to be resorted to for anything beyond mere amusement, but there are many works well worth reading at the park, and there are others of more modern production, which I know I can borrow of Colonel Brandon." By reading only six hours a day, I shall gain in the course of a twelve-month a great deal of instruction, which I now feel myself to want. 
Eleanor honoured her for a plan which originated so nobly as this, though smiling to see the same eager fancy which had been leading her to the extreme of languid indolence and selfish repining, now at work in introducing the excess into a scheme of such rational employment and virtuous self-control. Her smile, however, changed to a sigh when she remembered that her promise to Willoughby was as yet unfulfilled, and feared that she had that to communicate which might again unsettle the mind of Marianne and ruin at least for a time this fair prospect of busy tranquillity. Willing, therefore, to delay the evil hour, she resolved to wait till her sister's health was more secure before she appointed it. But the resolution was made only to be broken. Marianne had been two or three days at home before the weather was fine enough for an invalid like herself to venture out, but at last a soft, genial morning appeared, such as might tempt the daughter's wishes and the mother's confidence, and Marianne, leaning on Eleanor's arm, was authorised to walk as long as she could without fatigue in the lane before the house. Their sisters set out at a pace, slow as the feebleness of Marianne in an exercise hitherto untried since her illness required. And they had advanced only so far beyond the house as to admit a full view of the hill, the important hill behind, when pausing, with her eyes turned towards it, Marianne calmly said, "'There, exactly there,' pointing with one hand, "'on that projecting mound.' There I fell, and there I first saw Willoughby. Her voice sunk with the word, but presently reviving, she added, I am thankful to find that I can look on it with so little pain on that spot. Shall we ever talk on that subject, Helena? Hesitatingly it was said, or will it be wrong? I can talk of it now, I hope, as I ought to do. Eleanor tenderly invited her to be open. As for regret, said Marianne, I have done with that. As far as he is concerned, I do not mean to talk to you of what my feelings have been for him, but what they are now. At present, if I could be satisfied on one point, if I could be allowed to think that he was not always acting a part, not always deceiving me, but above all, if I could be assured that he was never so very wicked as my fears have sometimes fancied him, since the story of that unfortunate girl. She stopped. Eleanor joyfully treasured her words as she answered, If you could be assured of that, you think you should be easy. Yes, my peace of mind is doubly involved in it, for not only is it horrible to suspect a person who has been what he has been to me of such designs, but what must it make me appear to myself? What in a situation like mine but a most shamefully unguarded affection could expose me to? How then, asked her sister, would you account for his behaviour? I would suppose him. Oh, how gladly I would suppose him. Only fickle, very fickle. Eleanor said no more. She was debating within herself on the eligibility of beginning her story directly or postponing it till Marianne were in stronger health, and they crept on for a few minutes in silence. "'I'm not wishing him too much good,' said Marianne at last with a sigh, "'when I wish his secret reflections may be no more unpleasant than my own. "'He will suffer enough in them. "'Do you compare your conduct with his?' "'No.' 
I compare it with what it ought to have been. I compare it with yours. Our situations have borne little resemblance. They have borne more than our conduct. Do not, my dearest Eleanor, let your kindness defend what I know your judgment must censure. My illness has made me think. It has given me leisure and calmness for serious recollection. Long before I was enough recovered to talk, I was perfectly able to reflect. I considered the past. I saw in my own behaviour since the beginning of our acquaintance with him last autumn nothing but a series of imprudence towards myself and a want of kindness to others. I saw that my own feelings had prepared my sufferings and that my want of fortitude under them had almost led me to the grave. My illness, I well knew, had been entirely brought on by myself, by such negligence of my own health as I had felt even at the time to be wrong. Had I died, it would have been self-destruction. I did not know my danger till the danger was removed, but with such feelings as these reflections gave me, I wonder at my recovery. I wonder that the very eagerness of my desire to live, to have time for atonement to my God and to you all, did not kill me at once. Had I died, in what peculiar misery should I have left you, my nurse, my friend, my sister? You who had seen all the fretful selfishness of my latter days, who had known all the murmurings of my heart, how should I have lived in your remembrance? My mother too, how could you have consoled her? I cannot express my own abhorrence of myself. Whenever I looked towards the past, I saw some duty neglected or some failing indulged. Everybody seemed injured by me. The kindness, the unceasing kindness of Mrs Jennings, I had repaid with ungrateful contempt. To the Middletons, the Palmers, the Steeles, to every common acquaintance, even I had been insolent and unjust, and with a heart hardened against their merits, and a temper irritated by their very attention. To John, to Fanny, yes, even to them, little as they deserve, I had given less than their due. But you, you above all, above my mother, had been wronged by me. I and only I knew your heart and its sorrows. Yet, to what did it influence me? Not to any compassion that could benefit you or myself. Your example was before me, but to what avail? Was I more considerate of you and your comfort? Did I imitate your forbearance or lessen your restraints by taking any part in those offices of general complacence or particular gratitude which you had hitherto been left to discharge alone? No, not less when I knew you to be unhappy than when I had believed you at ease did I turn away from every exertion of duty or friendship, scarcely allowed sorrow to exist but with me, regretting only that heart which had deserted and wronged me, and leaving you, for whom I professed an unbounded affection, to be miserable for my sake. Here ceased the rapid flow of her self-reproving spirit, and Eleanor, impatient to soothe, though too honest to flatter, gave her instantly that praise and support which her frankness and her contrition so well deserved. Marianne pressed her hand and replied, "'You are very good. The future must be my proof. I have laid down my plan, and if I am capable of adhering to it, my feelings shall be governed and my temper improved.' 
I shall no longer worry others nor torture myself. I shall now live solely for my family. You, my mother and Margaret, must henceforth be all the world to me. You will share my affections entirely between you. From you, from my home, I shall never again have the smallest incitement to move. And if I do mix in other society, it will be only to show that my spirit is humbled, my heart amended, and that I can practice the civilities, the lesser duties of life, with gentleness and forbearance. As for Willoughby, to say that I shall soon or that I shall ever forget him would be idle. His remembrance can be overcome by no change of circumstances or opinions, but it shall be regulated, it shall be checked by religion, by reason, by constant employment. She paused and added in a lower voice, If I could but know his heart, everything would become easy. Eleanor, who had now been for some time reflecting on the propriety or impropriety of speedily hazarding her narration, without feeling at all nearer decision than at first, heard this, and perceiving that as reflecting did nothing, resolution must do all, soon found herself leading to the fact. She managed the recital, as she hoped, with address, prepared her anxious listener with caution, related simply and honestly the chief points on which Willoughby grounded his apology, did justice to his repentance, and softened only his protestations of present regard. Marianne said not a word. She trembled. Her eyes were fixed on the ground, and her lips became whiter than even sickness had left them. A thousand inquiries sprung up from her heart, but she dared not urge one. She caught every syllable with panting eagerness, her hand unknowingly to herself closely pressed her sister's, and tears covered her cheeks. Eleanor, dreading her being tired, led her towards home, until they reached the door of the cottage, easily conjecturing what her curiosity must be, though no question was suffered to speak it, talked of nothing but Willoughby, and their conversation together was carefully minute in every particular of speech and look where minuteness could safely be indulged. As soon as they entered the house, Marianne, with a kiss of gratitude, and these two words just articulate through her tears, Tell Mamma, withdrew from her sister, and walked slowly upstairs. Eleanor would not attempt to disturb a solitude so reasonable as what she now sought, and with a mind anxiously prearranging its result, and a resolution of reviving the subject again, should Marianne fail to do it, she turned into the parlour to fulfil her parting injunction. And so much for Willoughby. Woohoo! <laughs> I can't say I'm sorry to see him go. At least... Not right now. Because Eleanor and Marianne have a lot of healing to do. And Marianne especially. But before we talk about her, I want to go back to the beginning and talk about something interesting about Eleanor and her reaction to Willoughby. Did you notice how she kind of went went over to the Marianne side? She went to the dark side. She started to be affected by Willoughby much the same way Marianne would have been. He is this attractive energy. It's like Elvis has entered the room kind of thing. And that's 
very hard to resist. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this. I'm sure you probably have. I think most of us probably have. But wow, what a great capturing of the effect one of those people can have on you. Jane, Jane Austen did a really nice job the first few pages of our first chapter, chapter 45. Jane Austen did a really great job of that all the way up to the point where Eleanor goes through the thinking about Willoughby and Marianne and wonders if Marianne could ever be happy with anyone else and maybe it would be better if Mrs. Willoughby died. Which is a perfectly logical, horrible place to go in a moment like that when you've been influenced by a guy like that. And then she pulls herself back. That was the bridge too far. That was the, the thing past which she would not go and she stopped herself. And that's when she went back to Colonel Brandon. But up until that point, she was kind of kind of going through all the, oh, well, maybe, oh, I don't know. Maybe it was better for her. So alive. Blah, blah, blah. I know none of us are very sorry to see Willoughby go. Because what a cad. Well, before we listen today, I had mentioned that Marianne was going to have a, a climax of her own story, and Eleanor will have a climax of her story. And for a while, it looked like the climax of Marianne's story was going to be her illness, her almost dying. And that's true. But really, what Jane Austen was leading up to was the moment at the end of our chapters today, where she says, okay, I realize now that what I was doing was dangerous. And I'm going to redevote myself to being Eleanor. <laughs> but you know, in her own way, she is still going to say goodbye to the butternut tree and greet a new place with love and excitement every time she sees it because it's beautiful. But there is definitely that very adult realization that if it feels good, do it, might not be the best way to govern your entire life. And, and that it can lead to some risky behavior. And her risky behavior, of course, is not extreme risky behavior. It's not anything very modern, except that the repercussions of her behavior are way more severe back then than any kind of extreme behavior would be now. I think in the United States especially, there's very much a perception that you can reinvent yourself, whether it's Gatsby or going to a new high school or you move to a new town and just kind of start over again. There's that that belief that it's almost like there's always a do-over. And I don't know how prevalent that attitude would have been during Jane Austen's day. Probably not so much. Once your reputation was gone, it was really gone. And especially if all of society is in London and you are economically in that class, you are kind of locked in. So Marianne's risky behavior really was very, very risky in a lot of ways. And I think that that moment where she realizes it must have been pretty horrifying for her. And we can look at her statement that she's going to change as just another thing that she's saying that's dramatic. And she certainly says it in kind of a dramatic way. But 
when she says, I have laid down my plan, my future must be my proof. I've laid down my plan and this is how I'm going to live my life. One of the things that we've noticed about Marianne all the way along is that she's very good at living within a world of rules, as long as they're rules of her making. The, it has to be this to be beautiful. Edward does that wonderful job at the beginning of the book saying, you know, I'm not going to use the right words. When I see something that's pretty, I'm going to say it's pretty. You're going to say it's transcendent. I'm just going to munch it all up, so I'm not even going to try and tell you what the countryside looks like. You handle that, Marianne. That's your domain. So we've we've seen her live in that kind of world already. And it was a fairly strict world, actually. And so there's no reason not to believe that if she has set her mind to this future, that that is what she's going to do. She hasn't been flighty. She hasn't been kind of hippy-dippy. If it wasn't for Willoughby, she never would have gone off on that at least moderately self-destructive path. Instead, we really can take her at her word. And for Jane Austen's era, for her readers, this would have been a very important moment of her rededicating herself to her family, rededicating herself to what she knew was good and right behavior. And I know there are some readers, some modern readers and and critics who aren't so happy with this. They kind of, I guess, wish that Marianne could have gone off and been herself more of a free spirit. But I've never really seen her as a free spirit. Again, because of the rules that she's lived within, it's a fairly constrained way to live if you're devoted to this ideal of sensibility. It also seems very exhausting to me. <laughs> but that could just be me. And then, of course, at the end of 46, Eleanor finally tells Marianne all about Willoughby. She cries, but she takes it very well. And then she says, tell Mama. Which I, I loved in its simplicity. It's I've said I'm going to be devoted to my family. This is what I care about. It's a triumvirate here of the adult women in the household. Mother needs to know. Go tell mom. And Eleanor, you know, steals herself to tell the whole story again and goes and does it. But that reaction from Marianne of of simply weeping and going upstairs to be by herself for a little while, compose herself again, thinking of her mother, those, those few steps already show us that she really does mean what she says. She is going to moderate her behavior, focus on her family, and that's how she's going to live her life now. And it appears that she does. Pretty cool. I received a voicemail message that is both interesting and sobering. And it relates directly back to Marianne's illness. So I'm going to play that for you now. Hi, Heather. This is Ellen. I'm sorry, 1086 on Ravelry. I'm almost never there. But I just listened to episode 398. And I'm not sure. This is a little bit of a sad message because the very end of the episode, you mentioned that what Marianne might have had was 
diphtheria. And I am a, well, in the past few months, I've been listening a lot to Spanish radio. And a couple, a few months ago, I think it was in June of 2015 now, folks will probably remember the whole controversy when there was a measles outbreak at Disneyland. Well, a similar vaccination controversy started in Spain when I think the boy was six, ended up with diphtheria. And since they weren't used to actually treating the disease, they had to import the treatment from Russia and other places that don't have the vaccine and so still deal with this yucky thing. But I guess in the end, it didn't help because if I remember correctly, the little boy actually ended up dying and it was just a heartbreaking thing because it it seemed like he was getting better at one point. So that's what I wanted to mention. Other part of 398, all of what Willoughby said. Yeah. I still don't like him as a character myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping this is the last we see of him. Okay. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say, really. And have a good week. And I look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, yes, once again, I am so glad to live in the age of vaccination. And I suppose I need to thank Mom for getting me vaccinated when I was a kid. Thank you. Oi. It's so sad. It's so sad. Well, that about wraps it up on my end. You are not too late to send in audio for the 400th episode. People are sending, people are sending audio in. It's great. And, you know, people are just sending in the audio that they want to send in. I've gotten a couple of really funny votes for things and uh, some lovely book sharing going on. And, and then just some happy 400th notes that are lovely and awesome. So don't hesitate. Feel free to call 206. 206- 350-1642 or go to speakpipe.com slash craftlet and leave a message using your computer's internal microphone. Thank you again to all of our awesome patrons over at patreon.com slash craftlet. Your support for the show is really making a difference. You may not be able to see it yet, but it is. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support, and next week, happy 400. I'll talk to you later. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlit.lipson.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. 
And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>